Good morning. Welcome to worship. It is good to be here with you. Uh, before we begin, I'll go through, I just want to mention a couple of things from the back of our bulletin under the announcements. Um, one is that our nursery, again, is, is open for ages between zero and five, um, and that is across the street in the Family Life Building where the nursery is in the hallway there. Um, that's available during the worship service at the moment. Um, our church life night, our Wednesday night gathering began last week, um, and it was a fantastic time, uh, great food, teaching, and fellowship. Please, uh, if you can, come out this week. We'll be continuing uh, Wednesday night at 6 p.m. for dinner together and classes for all ages from zero to 115, um, whatever, whatever the upper limit is for life on earth. Um, I hope you can make it. Um, that is all I want to announce. And then next week we have um, WIC Circle meeting on Monday. Um, so you can look at, for more information on the back of your bulletin or uh, ask me or Pastor Scott for more information on any of this. God invites us uh, through his son, Jesus, by the power of the Spirit to worship Him this morning. Uh, take a few moments to prepare your hearts and your minds for the worship of the God of the universe. Let's do that now.
call to worship does two things for us. Uh, one, it reminds us that worship wasn't really our idea. It wasn't like we said, ooh, this is a good idea. Let's, let's assemble and do this thing. Uh, it, God is the one who took initiative, that he calls to us, come and worship. And then a call to worship gives us some of God's great and admirable qualities that provoke us to worship. The psalmist says in a, a, a phrase that I remember and think about a lot, your love is better than life. This call to worship shows us and reminds us of his steadfast love, and it's worthy of our praise. Would you stand for our call to worship? Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. If you hope in Christ today, his steadfast love is on you, and we praise him for it. Hymn 167, when morning gilds the skies, may Jesus Christ be praised. 167.
We praise you, O Christ, for you are worthy. Worthy because you are the Lamb who was slain to receive honor and power and glory and dominion now and forever. Hallelujah. We come in your name to seek your presence and favor among us. We come to offer our songs, to offer our money, to offer our bodies. We come to receive your word and to be equipped by your spirit to honor and praise and devote our lives to you, to be holy as you are holy. We desire our whole lives to be works of praise to the great King who has loved us and given himself for us. We honor Christ and we pray for your spirit to guide us in this service. We pray for your blessing on each of us here, that your grace and mercy would extend to the places of our need today and that we would find you to be sufficient for us in every way. We pray you would employ our thanks and our prayers and all of our songs and our attention today to build your church, to advance the cause and honor and name of Christ, to make us people who want to follow him, delighting in his ways and being faithful disciples. And as disciples, we take the prayer he taught us the first disciples to pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In your bulletins, you'll find a confession of faith. It's from the Heidelberg Catechism. And the, the, the way it's been processing is that it reminds us that we are all uh, people who are falling short of the glory of God, but who have been promised a Redeemer in Christ Jesus who would rescue us if we trust in Him. But our trust has a specific content. We believe real things. And in a, a question that we didn't read, it says, what do Christians believe? And it was the, the Apostles' Creed. But even as we say the Apostles' Creed, each of those phrases has rich and full meaning. And here the Heidelberg helps us meditate on those meanings, what we say when we confess the Apostles' Creed. And here with the beginning of that, I want you to confess your faith in Christ with the words in bold as I ask you the normal print. What do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, that the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created the heaven and earth and all that is in them, who still upholds and governs them by his eternal counsel and providence, is, for I am Christ his Son, my God and my Father. In him I trust so completely as to have no doubt that he will provide me with all things necessary for body and soul, and will also turn to my good whatever adversity he sends me in this life to sorrow. He is able to do so as Almighty God, and willing also as faithful Father. Amen. Please be seated.
We're going to take some time to pray together, as is our custom, as part of our liturgy. Um, And this part of our liturgy where we pray is a physical reminder um, to bring us into God's presence, to bring us into worship. Um, It's a discipline that trains us for the week ahead as we go to God with our needs and our requests, our desires. Um, Before I pray and lead us in a prayer for the body, uh, take a line from the confession for yourself uh, that you can use for your personal prayer time that we're about to have. Uh, Maybe as you've read this confession or you're rereading it, Uh, you might think that you don't actually trust God completely, as the confession says, and you want to ask God to help you trust him more. Uh, Or you're having a really difficult time right now. You can pray for wisdom from God to help you through whatever adversity that you're facing at the moment. I would recommend that you begin your prayer reflecting and giving thanksgiving to God, who is your Father, as the confession says, that He created you, that He is your Almighty God, and that He is faithful to you and to your family. Take a moment now to pray quietly. Um, Take a moment to confess your sins and ask for forgiveness because God is willing and able to forgive, and he is here with us. So let's take a few moments to pray silently, individually, and then I'll lead us in a prayer together. Let's pray. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. And when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Father, you uphold and govern everything by your eternal counsel and providence. You are our good Father. Because of your Son and your infallible word, we trust you so completely that we have no doubt you will provide for each one of us everything we need for our body and soul. Father, we have no doubt that you will turn all adversity in this life to our good and for your good. And when we do doubt, would you show us your faithfulness? God, would you surround us with your people who can remind us of your care for us, your willing and your loving? Help us to rest, Father. Give us the testimony of your Sabbath, which, where we can say by our rest that you uphold and you govern everything and you provide what we need even as we rest. 
Father, make us a living testimony of your care. When we purposefully take a nap on Sundays, when we enjoy your creation and study your word, help us to set aside this day in our hearts by faith. Lord Jesus, you know the pain and difficulties that each person in this room is experiencing. And just as you provide for our material needs, would you care for each person's needs for real connection, for encouragement, and for the knowledge that we are not alone? Lord, our hearts are open, and we pray that you would speak to us this morning from your word. I pray all of this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Our God in heaven, the whole earth, all its fullness is yours. You own the cattle on a thousand hills. You don't need us to give you anything, but rather you have invited us to share in the work that you're doing. You have used uh, us, our bodies, our wealth, our minds, our time, our resources to be the agency by which you build your kingdom. You've given us the dignity of this work and service, and for that we're grateful. We do pray that you would receive this offering, that you would dedicate it to those purposes which honor Christ and bring you glory. We pray that you would multiply the little effort that we can bring and accomplish your great and eternal purposes. We pray that you would provide for the work of the gospel here, the ministries that we wish to do and that you wish to bless so that your people might grow in the knowledge and of Christ and bear fruit in his name. We pray that through this offering you would provide for the needs of missionaries, that their work may expand and you might build your church all across the world. And we pray that through this giving you might meet the needs of mercy that arise among us around us. We long for people to give thanks to you and that you would use this offering to accomplish that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You take your hymnals and turn to 355. One of the ways that the scriptures describe the people that God is saving is he says they are my people. And we are God's people, enjoying many benefits and blessings, and so we praise Him for it. Hymn 355.
Please be seated. Let me ask you to turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 7. And if you, uh, if you got the bulletin on Friday through email and started reading ahead, you might have uh, recognized some of this passage. It's familiar in the sense that uh, we've read it before. Um, this summer, uh, when you did Ezra 2, there was a really long section of about 70 verses that were primarily Hebrew names and some numbers and uh, families. And, and uh, I understand that we read every word of it, which is good, because today we're going to summarize it, because I trust that you remember it from last time. As we think about where Nehemiah uh, brought us, <clears throat> uh, in, in the first chapter we saw the heart of God that is directed toward the welfare, protection, and health of his people. And then in chapter 2, his providence and power displayed and enacted in the world, guided by his heart for his people. And then in chapter 3, his people sharing that heart together as they literally work with trowel and cement, building a wall for each other, uh, sacrificing some of their own well-being and their own interest to serve the interest of the community. And then in chapters 4 through 6, we see the obstacles that get in the way of the building of God's kingdom, the, the worldly concerns, the enemies outside of us, our own sinful nature in us, and how the grace of God and His power overcomes every enemy and accomplishes His will. It ends in chapter 6 with uh, Nehemiah saying, we completed the wall. In uh, chapter 7, we're going to see what comes next because the wall itself, while it was sort of the focus, was never really the primary goal. The wall was to be a place that would bring safety and protection and healing to Jerusalem and, and to the people of Israel. But it was, it was meant to point them to a greater reality that they took refuge not in the city walls, but in God. And that they would learn to take refuge in Him uh, and be restored through their faith. Uh, chapters 7 to the end are going to show us that that project involves uh, knowing and trusting the love of God, responding to it with faith and repentance, and God is restoring His people. And the same God who was doing that in Nehemiah is doing that in us. And uh, we're going to read... Uh, a few verses in chapter 7, and then a few verses in chapter 8. Before we read it, would you pray with me? Our God in heaven, we long to know your heart for your church. We long to know your power in your church. We long to see you overcome obstacles, opposition, uh, enemies, both outside and our own adversity and enmity within it, that you would subdue our sin and give us a vision of your kingdom that is compelling, that is uh, trustworthy, that is beautiful, that captivates us, moves us to praise and sacrifice and love and honor. We pray that as we read the scriptures today, you would bless this moment in your word, that you would give us 
faithful meditations led by your Spirit, that you would help us apply the Scriptures to our lives and our life in the church, and that you would build your church in a way that honors Jesus. Lord, we love you and we trust you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Nehemiah verse seven, or chapter 7, verse 1. This is God's Word. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers, the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gate to Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut, the bar, shut and bar the doors Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts, and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. And then my God put it in my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at first, and I found it written in it. Now the next 70 verses or so are a repetition of Ezra 2, and I'll trust that you can read that on your own, because I can't read it publicly without trouble. Still, it's a list of names of real people whom had uh, left Babylon, where they had built houses and homes, where they had seen God's blessing, and yet they were willing to lay all that aside to come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and to rebuild the people of God. We'll pick back up in chapter 8, verse 1. And all the people were gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard and on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood... Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Maaseah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadnah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord and their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Achab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maaseah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabat, Hanan, and Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, they read from the book of the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. This is God's Word. It is completely true and utterly trustworthy. One of the worst kinds of 
of, I don't know, we'll use the word judgments, but I'm thinking like ways that we might express disapproval. We certainly can use violence. I mean, just recently we were remembering the 20-year anniversary of terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center, on the Pentagon, and then the, the plane that failed to land to its target. Hatred and disapproval and whatever other motives led to violence and death. And it, it, it has shaped the history of our country uh, for years since then. It's become something of an identity in how we respond to terrorism. But maybe on an institutional scale, that is uh, this most terrible and violent way to show disapproval. But the more common way, and it's just about as destructive, is just good old-fashioned ignorance. I'm going to ignore. I'm going to reject by distance and, and intentionally neglect. Recently, speaking to a, a social worker, talking about children in the foster care system, and she was describing how sometimes what foster children will do is they will act out, uh, they will do things that are violating the rules at school or at home. They will violate the rules because it gets them attention. Because the neglect they had experienced was so painful that they would rather have discipline. They would rather have punishments than nothing at all. That's sort of shocking, isn't it? And yet, it's deeply embedded in, in the heart of, of humanity that we want to be seen, recognized, and known. And one of the most terrible judgments that God ever gives to people this side of death, well, I'll just read it to you. It's in the book of Amos. Here's what it says. <clears throat> Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. He'd sent famines plenty of times. He had sent famines because he wanted to get the attention of Israel. He had sent enemies like Babylon and Assyria and you know, before that, Canaanites and Philistines, because he wanted to get their attention. He'd sent them prophets saying, listen to my words, come back, return to me. And in Amos, he says, I'm going to stop doing that. And you won't have a famine of food. You'll still have wheat. You'll still have stuff to drink, but you won't hear from me. And it is a terrible judgment. It is a terrible judgment when God goes silent. It's not just in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, in Romans chapter 1, it says that the wrath of God is being revealed against all kinds of ungodliness and, and all the things that are going on in the world that are against God. And it describes what that wrath looks like. It says, after listing these sins that disintegrate our inner person, and disintegrate our communities and bear all kinds of destruction in God's world that God gave them over. 
He simply let go of the common grace restraints and let them go in the direction they wanted. He let people who were opposed to him go be opposed to him. And it was a terrible act of his wrath. It's a picture here where God is saying maybe the worst judgment that he could ever give to a person in this life is simply to let them walk away. Well, then the obvious contrast would be that his great blessings is that he would draw near and that he would come close and that he would pursue and that he would say, you are mine. Years and years ago, 80s or 90s, the American Express had the, the slogan, membership has its privileges. That was the saying, if you got our credit card, you'd have these benefits in this company that would be behind you and, and you'd get things because you are in. Well, what you're seeing in chapter 7 and 8 is the membership in God's people came with certain benefits, some blessings that fell on God's people. And, and I, I'm going to just hit two sort of his big overviews. Here they are. God knows us, and we know God. Those are the two blessings. God knows us, and we know God. So let's think about that moment. We already talked about how it shows up in, in neglected children who will, who will seek even bad consequences because they need attention. We have a desire to be seen and recognized for someone to pay attention. What we really want is for someone to know us really, really well and love us anyway. I want someone who knows me deeply and profoundly and loves me. Now, you've, you've probably had this experience where you're getting to know someone, and so you, you kind of give them some of your most presentable parts so that you can get them to like you. Uh, okay, so here's the image I have. It's a couple on their first date, and they're trying to get to know each other. Of course, they're on their best behavior. They look nice and smell nice. Everything's good, and they're, and they're talking, and, and they, someone says, so what kind of music do you like? And the other person starts going through the Rolodex of music, and it's like, I can talk about these kinds of music, but not all of them, because I'm going to pick the ones that are safe and popular. I'll talk about those. And that person's like, oh, me too. And they like the same music, so they feel accepted, even though they're only giving the tiniest bit. We do that with each other a lot. We, we want to present the parts I think will be accepted. And, and then I get loved back, and I'm like, that's really good, because I like being loved. But I also know that it's fragile, because, you know, two or three or four nights later, you're in the car and you're, a song comes on. And you're like, that's not one of those songs. It's, it's, it, it exposes the real, you know, person. This is, of course, what happens in marriage, for say. Now, it's, marriage is not the only place this can happen. It's just one place that it happens uh, necessarily. And that is, you, you have two people who are bound together by vows, commitment, and law. And they are in such proximity to each other that you can't really hide things. And the, and the presentable parts and the unpresentable parts, the, the gifts and the flaws, eventually get known. But the person 
who is married says, yes, my spouse has, has gifts and flaws, and they are significant, gifts and flaws, but it's my person. It's my spouse. This person is mine, and so I love them with everything that I know about them. And in doing that, we find something that's deep and human forming. And I want you to see this passage, this, this part where it's just a list of names, that, is, that it tests the attention, seriously. Like, probably today, this afternoon, if you go back, you're ready for your nap, start chapter, verse 6 or so of chapter 7, and I suspect you can get to that nap quickly. These names just don't mean anything to us. These are people we do not know or have any connection with, and we can't even pronounce it. But I want you to imagine just for a second that instead in this list, you saw, you know, your family members. Somebody who's going to Ellis Island looking at the registry of the immigrants who came through and finding the page on which great-great-grandfather passed through and became a person who was here and established me here. If, if I'm reading this and it's my grandfather that's in this list, I go, my grandfather said, hey, we're comfortable in Babylon, but we belong in Jerusalem. And he brought us home. A lot of, of, of Jewish people didn't. Plenty stayed in Babylon and decided that Persia was a perfectly happy place for them to live the rest of their lives. But these gave that life up and came home and they said, this is who we are. We belong in the land of God among the people of God. That is who we are. And I would read these names and treasure it, not to mention if your name was in it. I mean, this is the eternal word of God. In a million years, we'll still read these names, maybe with more interest because we'll have met some of them. But here, what I want you to particularly notice is that this is the second time God has included this passage. It's, it's in Ezra 2 and here. God is listing these people because they're His people. He says, these are my names. These are my sons and daughters. And I know them by name. I know their ways. I know where they came from. I know what's going on in their life. I've written it down. And we're not going to end up in the scriptures, but be assured, your name, believer in Jesus, is in his book. Every one of your days is written. He knows you in those deep places that you don't even like to think about or mention. He knows you in ways you don't even know yourself yet. And he has said, you're mine. You're loved. You are treasured. I wrote your name down. I engraved it on my hands. You're written on his heart. Here's what Jesus says fulfilling this passage. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. I call them each by name. And not one of them is missing. I've, I've got a census and I've made sure that all of my children, every last one of my sheep, will be in my fold, and I will not leave any of them outside. They are mine, and I've paid attention to them, and I love them. I'll lay down my life for them. 
I want you to get this passage that as you become a person in the family of God, a member of God's household, you are noticed. God Himself is paying attention. You are not neglected. He knows your name, He knows your ways, and He deeply cares. Now, I think there are a hundred ways to apply this, and I hope you'll meditate on them and how it brings you comfort and knowledge. And when you feel alone, I want you to remember this passage of names and say, I'm not alone. God is here and he is paying attention. But I want you to also know this should shape the way we think about each other. If God has said, I know you and I love you, then that really governs how we live in the church. I'm committed to loving my brothers and sisters for Jesus' sake. And it doesn't matter what I find out. In fact, I want to know more. This should be the heartbeat of the Christian in the church is I want to know. I want to know what my brother and sister experiences and what life is like for them. I want to know what their gifts and their flaws are. And I want them to be loved in a tangible way in the body of Christ so that you see lived out among us what God is like. That's what Nehemiah is doing. I took this census so that I could make sure everybody was accounted for and everybody was cared for and that not one would be missing. So God knows us. How about we know God? Well, that's the next section. It tells us in chapter 8 that they built the platform. They called everybody into Jerusalem for a day. And in the beginning of the morning, Ezra stands up with the book of the law and he starts reading. And he reads from early in the morning until noon. Long time. Uh, One uh, sermon I I read on this passage said, uh, the title of the sermon was, um, shoot, I can't remember now. They read God's word for a very long time. That was the name of the sermon. And That's exactly what they did. They read it for a very long time. Ezra stood on a wooden plank in verse 4 that they had made for this purpose with attendants beside him. In verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was above all the people and as he opened it, the people stood. And then verse 8, they read from the book of the law of God clearly and they gave the sense so that the people would understand the reading. Here's what's going on. They take this book that they have probably had very little access to. They've been exiles. They're back home in Jerusalem. It's a new day, and now they have access to God's Word in a way they probably didn't for many, many years. And Ezra stands up and he reads it. And probably what happens is he reads a section, and then he explains some of it. And then there were Levites milling around with the crowd and they would stop and and those Levites would say, do you understand what he said? And they would, in a smaller group, start talking about it. And and the Levite would help them understand and then apply, not just in general ways, but in very specific ways. Here's how, how this could work out in your household. And so they had this big, large group in which one man preached, and then they had these little, smaller groups in which they discussed the Scriptures together. And it took all morning for them to get through it, and they paid attention. They said, give me more. I want you to know that, that 
you have unprecedented access to God's Word so that you could know Him. You have a feast of God's Word for you all the time. Full refrigerator stuff, full of food from God's Word that you can get to with no effort whatsoever. And that has not been the case most of life. Before the printing press, it was expensive to, 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 to make a Bible. It had to be hand-copied. And, and during that time, they, they would use sheepskins to write the Scriptures on. So it took literally a flock of sheep to put together a Bible. And so they were very expensive and very time-consuming. And even most churches didn't have a Bible. So what they would do, the churches that did have one, is they would have their big, huge Bible sitting up here on this platform, and they would chain it down so that no one could take it because Bibles were so expensive. Stealing a Bible seems odd, but that was the risk. And even if you could see it, even if you could get there into the church, it was in Latin, And so unless you were particularly well-educated, you had no access to the Bible. And John Wycliffe, in about the 14th century in England, thought it would be proper to have a Bible in the common language. So he took the Latin Bible and he translated it into English and, and gave pieces of it in handwritten copies out to people in England. And it became, it was actually forbidden to do so. So when Wycliffe died of natural causes, they exhumed his body and burned it at the stake and scattered his ashes in the river so that they could say he was condemned. John Tyndale, sorry, William Tyndale, um, was the first person to take the, the, the original languages, Greek and Hebrew, and translate it into English. He did so, uh, I think, after the printing press, and so it could be printed. And here's an English Bible made accessible to the people. It was, again, against the law. So he was arrested. He was condemned to die for making the Bible in the common language. They tied him to a post where they would burn him, but before they burned him, they strangulated him. And then they burned his body because he thought the Bible should be available in English. You know, you have heard, I know, in the last month, this phrase, freedom is not free. It comes with the violence and war and bloodshed of those who are determined to earn freedom for others. I want you to know that your English Bible was not free. It came through violence and war and bloodshed to put it in your hands. And even now, in dozens of countries, there is no scripture of Bible in their language. And in dozens of countries, it's illegal. They risk their lives to own a Bible. I want you to just see this. God has given you a remarkable blessing in the access you have to his word that shows you what he is like, that declares his grace and favor in Jesus Christ, that calls you to respond in faith and repentance, it is his mercy to you that you hear it. 
His judgment is to withhold it. But it is His grace just that you can get to it. What I want you to see is that chapter 7 is God saying, I know my sheep, I know them all, I've named them, they're mine. Chapter 8 is Him saying, and I speak to them. What did Jesus say? Shepherd, I know my sheep, I call them by name, not one is missing. And they know me, and they hear my voice. The sheep know His voice. He has spoken to you. So that you would know him. It is God's blessing that you have the scriptures to read privately and alone. But God's ordinary way of communicating and sharing his grace is in this corporate gathering of people where Ezra reads and preaches and the people talk and explain and work it out together. This is God's design is that you together would take hold of God's Word, and through it, you would know Him. God knows you, and He wants you to be known, or wants you to know Him. J.I. Packer, who wrote a book, Knowing God, said this, once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. What would happen if you thought the main thing about my life is that I'm to know God. How would it shape your priorities? How would it shape the way you think about your problems? After all, that's what God has given you His Word for. He knows you, and He wants you to know Him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, it is a privilege to know you, to speak to you, to know your ways, and to believe them. It is a privilege to be able to believe and to repent and to know your grace in life. We sometimes don't notice it's a privilege because it's so common. So much has your, your blessing been on us and our people. We pray that you would make your word a treasure to us. It would be our conversation, that your word would be uh, truth and the place in which we find our nourishment and it would be a spiritual reality for us that is powerful and strong. And it would shape how we think about all of life. And let us remember you know us deeply, profoundly, intimately. And you love us with an everlasting love. We ask for these truths to take root in our hearts. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We ask you to take your hymnals and let us celebrate wonderful Savior who has made himself known to us, hymn 175. A wonderful Savior is Jesus my Lord. Let's stay in this hymn 175.
Moses asked to see God's face, to know him very intimately. And God said, if you saw that, you would die. Such would be the, the power of knowing God. And yet, he caused Aaron to pronounce a blessing in which the goal that God had was that they would be able to look on his face. This is what God has prepared you for. The blessing of God for the people of God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.